Welcome to the Cartography Podcast. This episode is going to be about psychedelics. So I thought we would start the episode by listing and going over uh, some of the various psychedelics. I don't want to present myself as, a, as an expert on the subject. So full disclosure from the beginning, I've done mushrooms a couple times and I did ayahuasca once. Yeah, I uh, have never done ayahuasca, but I've done mushrooms a couple of times and uh, would be happy to share my experience in a non-expert way as well. Okay, so maybe let's start with psilocybin and go over that one. So for people who don't know, the psychoactive component in mushrooms is psilocybin. And there's there's a bunch of different kinds of mushrooms, but as far as I know, the main psychedelic component is psilocybin across species. Uh, I'm not 100% sure if it is across species. It's definitely amongst the... Uh, you know, what, what are commonly referred to as shrooms, you know, what most people know of as psychedelic mushrooms. But there's also a pretty um, widely known strain of mushroom called the Amanita muscaria. Uh, and the main ingredient in that I do not believe is psilocybin, although off the top of my head, I don't recall what, what it is, the main psychoactive ingredient. Um, and those, by the way, are really interesting because they're featured in uh, all sorts of folk art and religious imagery. Those are the, uh, the red mushroom caps with the little white spots. And if you kind of look for them, you'll see them absolutely everywhere. Uh, it's, it's where the Santa Claus kind of costume is inspired by that mushroom. And they appear in all sorts of like medieval art. And it's very interesting, but I think that's uh, kind of an exception to that psilocybin. Yeah, they always pop up in like kids' stories or animations and things like that. You always see the illustrators, I guess. The Smurfs. Or, yeah, or animators putting them in. But yeah, I, I know there's there's psilocybin cubensis is a pretty popular mushroom that people often find. And obviously that one has psilocybin in it. And then I'm fairly certain that it's also the main component in gold caps or golden caps or some, something like that. I think that's actually the most common mushroom that people get. They're like the the larger like beige colored ones. And I think that's typically what people get when they, when they get mushrooms. Interesting. So for psilocybin mushrooms, um, you know, what, why don't we let you start, Jay? What, what is your general experience with those been? Well, so it, it definitely depends on how much you take. Most people would consider five grams to be a lot. And at that point, I'm pretty sure most people have like full on visual hallucinations. But again, it, it's not true for everybody. And the strength of them is varies wildly. They, it, it even varies like between microclimates. I remember when I was in the Seattle area, we went looking for mushrooms a couple times and we lived on an island out there and people... I remember talking to people about it and they were saying that like, oh, the ones from this island are actually significantly different than ones from other parts of the area. So like, I think the experience really often changes a lot based on which specific mushrooms you actually have. So five grams would be considered a lot. And then I think it typically takes like maybe two grams to like feel any effects. So like the first time I did it, I think I did like two and a half grams and it lasted, I would say four 
four hours, but it wasn't super intense, but it felt like comparable to weed edibles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it lasted about four hours. It was not super intense, but definitely more intense than taking like 10 or 20 grams of edibles. But yeah, so like my experience with that was maybe maybe the most I took was like three and a half or four grams. And at that point, you get like sort of just a little bit of like, I think they call like tracers in your vision, like things start to blur a little bit. I never had like full on hallucinations or anything. But I vividly remember first time I did it, we were outside on my friend's property and he had all these trees and it was like really beautiful there. And I remember like feeling like I never really appreciated the the beauty of like a tree or like the, the plants that were in the landscape. And like, that was something that has stuck with me uh, since that experience. And then also I remember there was in his house, he had a lot of artwork and I remember the artwork had that same sort of striking effect on me that it was like, like see, seeing the, the, like the colors maybe just like popped in a way that sort of resonated with me in a way that uh, they never really did before. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting because that's almost exactly how I would describe my psilocybin experience that I had. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, I tried it a couple of times, but there was really only once that I got like a, a you know significant sort of effect from it. And I would say by far, I don't even think that I did experience anything like trails or anything that could really be described as like a visual effect, except to say that colors and just the way that everything looked and sounded and felt uh, took on this kind of meaning to me, this significance, which I felt like I had never really grasped before. You know, it was all about like, oh my God, I can't believe that I never realized how amazing all of this is. You know, things like birds. I mean, I got to look at a, a woodpecker. I was down at my property and just hanging out in the woods. And um, I, I mean, I don't know if people realize that woodpeckers are like probably the most amazing looking birds in the entire world. If you ever look at the, the pattern on their backs, it's just absolutely insane. Um, but, you know, stuff like that just really, really jumped out at me uh, in a, in a much more sort of, um, I guess, I don't want to say philosophical, but just like the, it was profound. That's, that's kind of how I would describe that experience. I, I came to appreciate things in a way I had not before. And then to backtrack just a little bit, we were talking about Amanita muscarias briefly. It looks like the, um, active, the psychoactive ingredient in that is, um, muscarine or mucinol muscarine is what it is what i'm seeing so um the the effects of those by the way are considered to be like a little bit different i think they grow mostly in like uh kind of more northern climates and like uh coniferous rather than deciduous forests they're pretty common in siberia and places like that um and uh they definitely have like ceremonial uses in that part of the world but generally speaking they're not at least in in most of the west they're not really used in any kind of a recreational way uh which is interesting to me that's pretty recent as far as i think the mid 1500s they used to put mushrooms in the beer uh like in the Bavaria uh -huh. region yep so so they actually had to have like an edict or something that some sort of law they passed that outlawed putting mushrooms in the beer and again i'm not sure like how prevalent that actually was at that point like if it was just yeah. like 
a formality that they had to do or something. And I'm not mm-hmm. even sure if they were in like, Russia, they did it with vodka. Okay. But yeah, I'm not even sure if it was actually psychoactive at that point. But I've also heard stories of people, I forget if it was on Joe Rogan or somewhere, but a lot of people speculate that even the Greeks would use some sort of psychoactive component in in their beer or wine. And that's sort of why they think they got some of those um, stories that basically read like a trip or like a hallucinogenic experience. Absolutely. Just being drunk or something. Well, of course, most people know about the famous Oracle at Delphi which was uh, this, you know, place where the ancient Greeks from all the different city-states, as far as I know, they would visit this oracle uh, in which there were supposed to, I believe the story goes that there were three young girls, virgin girls, who were, like, kept in this place, and this was the, you know, the sort of this was their job. They would basically, they were soothsayers, and they would tell uh, tell people their future in, in all sorts of cryptic ways and statesmen and kings and, and all sorts of important people would go to visit this Oracle at Delphi in order to, um, you know, get advised. Uh, and, and so I bring that up because the, my understanding is that very likely, uh, those, those girls who were, you know, giving those prophecies were pro- they were definitely on something. I mean, I think that's the, uh, commonly accepted stories that they were tripping on something or other. It's, it's interesting. I wonder what sort of substance they used, but I mean, as, as some of you guys might know, uh, you know, mushrooms are merely one of the, uh, you know, well, the mushrooms aren't plants, but there are so many different, uh, life forms, plants, uh, fungi in nature. I mean, it's, I, I think that the list even that is that people know about, you know, that, uh, pharmacology knows about is like several hundred common plants that are by no means outlawed or, you know, some of them people have in their homes that are incredibly high in, uh, in DMT, dimethyltryptamine. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to add is that regarding psilocybin specifically, typically like when you get over like the five gram amount, it's not only like visual hallucinations. People often also explain about how they experience time in a different way, like either faster or slower. And even if you take enough of psilocybin, you could actually have an experience where you feel like you're like a near death experience or something like where you feel like you've left your body. But again, like the experience that you have really depends upon the amount that you take. There's also ways to make it more powerful, like if you only have a little amount. So like one method that people do is they brew it with a tea. And then if you do that, that really makes it a lot stronger than it normally is. But I don't know exactly how you would go about measuring that out exactly. But I think that's another important point, too, is that like you really need to be uh, specific and precise in terms of measuring this stuff out and in terms of understanding what you have, because it really could get you into a really dangerous situation really quickly. Absolutely. Um, now, I don't know how actually physically dangerous at least most of these um psychedelic substances, certainly psilocybin are, I don't know what the actual physiological risks are, but I think it's safe to say that, uh, probably very few people would enjoy, you know, taking too high a dose of, of a psychedelic where now, you know, that said, um, it's not necessarily something that everyone is always supposed to enjoy as we were talking earlier about that there are, um, you know, all sorts of traditional uses for these substances. And it's really relatively recently in in Western culture that they've been, um, 
used in, in some kind of a recreational capacity. I think uh, for a lot of, you know, shamanic rituals, a lot of indigenous people, you know, the, the struggle of this experience is, uh, is, is kind of the point. And it's, uh, you know, uh, I think even I remember back in elementary school, we were taught about the uh, vision quests that Native Americans would, would engage in as a, as a rite of passage, you know, when, when young boys especially were entering puberty. Uh, and uh, at that time in elementary school, I didn't realize that, you know, psychedelics were kind of the, the major component of that, but uh, it turns out that they are. So all that to say, it's not necessarily always supposed to be a fun time, but please be careful and uh, only ever do something like this, you know, if you have done an extensive amount of research or if you are with someone who you trust deeply. Yeah, it's interesting uh, because even now, I forget if it's in Arizona or New Mexico. I can't remember if it's called like the sun dance or something, but like there's, so these shamanic experiences aren't only driven by a psychedelic. So fundamentally what it is, it's, it's inducing a trance state and there's a couple of vectors to do that. So psychedelics is one vector, song and dance is another one. And then even like pushing your pain threshold is another one. And that's basically what the, I think it's like the sun dance or something. But, uh, but people could still go and participate in that today. I, I guess you just have to pay a certain amount and like learn about it and you can do it. But what they do with that is they like, I think they put like a ring injection or something, like some sort of piercing in your body. And then it's like in your body for like hours and you're like singing and dancing. And then like in the culmination of the experience, they like rip it out of you. So like, so yeah, I, I don't remember if they're taking psychedelics or not. That during sounds this. fun. That sounds yeah, like yeah. something I want to pay for. But yeah, exactly. But, but before I did, uh, before I did ayahuasca, I read Eliade's book on this. He was like a French anthropologist, I think. And he like traveled all throughout North and South America and documented like the shamanic, the book is called Shamanic Techniques of Ecstasy. And he, he sort of documented all of that. And I don't think that he makes the psychedelic connection to the extent that it was actually occurring. But the interesting part about that is that they were inducing the, they were having the shamanic experience with or without psychedelics in, in a lot of these cultures. Like it, it isn't necessarily dependent upon psychedelics. Fascinating. I like to think that the sun dance is actually just a giant practical joke that they're playing on like rich white people. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation, please subscribe to the Cartography Podcast at patreon.com.